This is Dan Fleisch, and this is the podcast for the first portion of Chapter 3 of A Student's Guide to Vectors and Tensors. In this podcast, I'll be covering Sections 3.1, Mass on an Inclined Plane, and 3.2, Curvilinear Motion. As I said in the preface, Chapter 3 and Chapter 6 are quite different than the other chapters in this book, in that instead of introducing new vector and tensor concepts in these chapters, these are about applying the concepts that have been described in the previous chapters. So in Chapter 3, I selected a few problems that illustrate the use of the vector concepts from Chapters 1 and 2. The first two of those problems involve mechanics, that is, the mass on the inclined plane and curvilinear motion of a car going around a curve, and the second two involve fields, specifically electric and magnetic fields. So that's why there are two podcasts for this chapter, this one on the mechanics problems and the next podcast on the two electromagnetics problems. So section 3.1 begins on page 62, and it asks you to consider a delivery woman pushing a box up an inclined ramp. Presumably she's trying to move this into her truck, as illustrated in figure 3.1 on page 63. We want to know how the box will move, and in order to analyze that problem, you need to use some of the vector concepts that have been described in the previous chapters. Specifically, you want to know the total force on the box, and that's going to involve finding vector components and doing vector addition, and once you have the total force, you'll be able to relate that to acceleration and ultimately velocity if you want to know how fast the box is going to be moving. As is often done in physics problems, we're going to start off by simplifying this down to the very essentials. So imagine that the delivery woman is not present initially. Let's say she slips off the side of the ramp, and there's no friction on the ramp. So the ramp is completely frictionless, and the box is free to slide down under the influence of gravity. Under those conditions, it becomes quite straightforward to figure out how fast the box is going to be moving when it gets to the bottom of the ramp. So always bear in mind what it is you're trying to find. In this case, we're trying to find the acceleration of the box so we can determine its velocity. And perhaps more importantly, we want to know on what do those things depend. That is, once we find equations for the acceleration and the velocity, it'll be interesting to see which parameters enter into those equations. That is, on what do those variables depend. As you've probably learned before you read this book, whenever you've got a problem like this, it's a really good idea to draw a diagram of what's going on, specifically a free body diagram in which all the forces acting on the box are shown. An example of that is figure 3-2 on page 63. By taking the delivery woman off the ramp and taking away friction, we've really gotten this down to two forces. The force of gravity pointing straight down, I've assumed this box is on the earth, and then there's a normal force. The normal force is the force of the ramp on the box, and the normal force points up and to the left, as shown in figure 3-2. Now, where do these forces come from? Well, the force of gravity comes from the mass of the Earth, and the normal force comes as a reaction. That is, the ramp is producing a force on the box because the box is producing a force on the ramp. So this is the reaction force, F sub n, meaning normal. In this case, normal means perpendicular to the surface of the ramp. So why are we talking about forces here if we want to know acceleration? Because Newton's second law gives us the relation between acceleration and force. And you see how I like to write Newton's second law in the third line on page 63, where it says in parentheses, A the vector, acceleration, is equal to the sum of the force vectors divided by mass. 
Now, you've probably seen Newton's second law written as F equals MA, and there's certainly nothing wrong with doing that. But it's more meaningful to me this way, because I like to think of this as telling me something. And what it tells me is the acceleration that an object experiences is equal to the sum of the forces on that object divided by the mass of the object. When I think of it that way, it makes sense to me. For some object of a certain mass, if I put a greater force on it, I'm going to get a greater acceleration. If I put smaller forces or if I put counteracting forces so that some cancel parts of another, I'm going to get a smaller acceleration. Likewise, for a given set of forces, if I have one object with a bigger mass and another object with the same forces but a smaller mass, the object with the bigger mass is going to have smaller acceleration because mass is in the denominator. So I really like to write Newton's second law as A equals the sum of the vector forces divided by the mass. But feel free to write it either way that's meaningful to you. On page 64, the first paragraph addresses the question, why are we drawing these forces as though they're acting at only one point? Doesn't the force of gravity pull on everything in that box? And isn't the normal force acting along the whole bottom part of the box, that is the part in contact with the ramp? Well, absolutely, those things are true. But remember, in many, many situations, you can get meaningful answers by treating the object as a particle. That is, we're going to write the force of gravity as a vector as though it acts at only one point in that box. Likewise, the normal force is going to be written as a vector acting on that same point. Now, certain problems cannot be treated this way. If you're trying to do torque, for example, or if this object were spinning around and you were trying to analyze its angular acceleration, you couldn't analyze it this same way. But in this case, we're going to deal with translational motion only. We can treat the forces as though they're all acting at the center of mass, and that makes it much easier to do your free body diagram and to get things like components correct because the angles will be much more clear for you. Okay, before you can start divvying up the forces into their components, you need a coordinate system. There's lots of ways to do that. My favorite way is shown on the top of page 65. There you see in figure 3-4, look at the A part of the figure first, and notice that I've got an x-axis and a y-axis, and my x-axis points down the ramp, and my y-axis is perpendicular to the ramp, pointing upward. Now you may say, well, why did you tilt them, and why do you draw them this way? You don't have to. As a matter of fact, in the chapter end problems, you can see how this problem works when you use horizontal axes. But I think it's a little easier to solve most problems of this type using the tilted axes, as I've shown here. Why is that? Well, by drawing the x-axis as increasing down the ramp, for a box sliding down the ramp, I know I'm going to have acceleration in the positive x-direction. And by making the y-axis perpendicular to the ramp, I know that my normal force is going to be directly along the y-axis. You may say, yeah, but look at your force of gravity. Now it's neither along your x nor your y-axis, and that's exactly right. We are going to have to turn f sub g into its components before we do the sum of the x-forces and the sum of the y-forces. So that's true. One advantage to making the axes horizontal and vertical is that the force of gravity does lie along one of the axes. So if that's your preference, be my guest. But using the axes as they're drawn here, it's pretty easy to find the components of the force of gravity. And to do that, figure 3.4b should be a little bit helpful. Now one of the first things to understand when you do a box on a ramp kind of problem is that the angle theta, 
That is the ramp angle with the horizontal. You see it in figures A and B on the leftmost part of each figure. There's angle theta from the horizontal up to the ramp surface. That is the same angle as the angle between the force of gravity pointing straight down and the negative y-axis if you use the tilted y-axis as I've drawn here. That is theta is the same angle in both those cases. If you want to see why that is, I drew a little dashed triangle in figure 3.4b, and there you can see a theta and a 90 minus theta, which makes the other side of the triangle theta again. You can also check that quickly by imagining what happens if theta equals zero. Well, if theta equals zero, the ramp is horizontal, and then fg points along the negative y-axis, so that seems right. Once you've got the angle theta between FG and the y-axis, you're in a good position to start finding components. Those components can be found with the aid of a figure such as figure 3.5 on the top of page 66. Notice there, the vector force FG pointing straight down is made up of two components, one pointing along the negative y-axis, and in that figure it says the length of that is the magnitude of FG times the cosine of theta. Well, of course it is. The magnitude of Fg is the hypotenuse of that triangle. And the cosine is the adjacent side over the hypotenuse. So therefore, the adjacent side is equal to the hypotenuse, the magnitude of Fg, times cosine theta. Likewise, the length of the vector pointing down and to the left, that is along the x direction, is the magnitude of Fg times the sine of theta, because the sine is the opposite over the hypotenuse. So by doing this little bit of geometry, you know the x and y parts of the force of gravity. Those are written on page 65 in equation 3-1. Now here I've written the components as vectors. I'll say a few words about this in a minute, but notice it says fgx, the vector in the x direction, that is the component of the force of gravity in that direction, is the magnitude of fg sine theta, that's what we said the length was, times i hat, because in this case I'm writing it as a vector and it's in the i hat or positive x direction. Likewise, in the y direction, this says fgy, the vector component in the y direction of the force of gravity, is the magnitude of fg times the cosine of theta, and that's written with a minus j hat after it to remind you that this one points in the negative y direction. So that's one way of writing components as vectors, which include the basis vectors i hat and j hat. More common in physics and engineering texts, you're going to see the components written as scalars. And I did that on page 66 in equation 3-2. There you see fg comma x written as a scalar, which is the magnitude of fg sine theta, and fg comma y, again a scalar, as minus fg cosine theta. Now, if you think about it, what does that minus sign really mean? All it really means is that by writing these as scalars, we have assumed that you keep in mind that these refer to certain directions. That is, the x component applies in the x direction, and the y component applies in the y direction, and if it's minus, that means it applies in the minus y direction. So, that's why you sometimes see scalar components written with negative signs. You can write the components as vectors with i hat and j hat, or you can write them as scalars, as long as you remember that when you write them as scalars, they apply only to certain directions, and you don't ever want to make the mistake of adding 
an X component to a Y component because those don't point in the same direction and therefore they can't be added algebraically even though they both look like scalars. These are really parts of vectors and you can only add them using vector addition. Okay, now that you've divvied up the force of gravity into an X part and a Y part, you're prepared to start doing the sum of the forces. That's really easy in the X direction because there is no other force in the X direction. After all, we tilted our axes so that the Y axis is perpendicular to the ramp, so the only other force, F sub N, the normal force, has no X component. It points entirely along the Y axis. That means that the sum of our X forces is simply equal to FG sine theta. But in the y direction, we've got more than one force. We've got the normal force pointing up the positive y-axis, and we've got the component of the gravitational force pointing down the negative y-axis. So to do the sum of the forces there, as you can see in equation 3, 4, you get magnitude of F sub n minus the magnitude of Fg cosine theta. So 3, 3 is the equation for the summation of the x-forces. 3, 4 is the equation for the summation of the y-forces. But if you want to just write this as a vector equation, you can do that as in 3, 5, where you've got the x-part with an i-hat and the y-part with a j-hat. Once you've got the sum of the forces, it's pretty easy to find the acceleration. After all, we said Newton's second law tells us that the acceleration is the sum of the forces divided by the mass. So in equation 3.6 on the top of page 67, you can see that for the x case. The only force is Fg sine theta. Divide that by m, that's the acceleration. For the y part, we again sum up the y forces and divide by m, and that's what's on the right-hand side of equation 3.7. Or if you want to put them together, there they are with an i-hat and a j-hat, written in 3.8. Now there are two ways to simplify these equations. The first is to recognize that the magnitude of the force of gravity is easily found. It's just the mass of the object times g, the magnitude of the acceleration of gravity, which if you're here on the Earth is 9.8 meters per second squared. So wherever you see a magnitude of fg, you can always substitute in the expression mg. The other thing to recognize is that the y acceleration, a sub y in equation 3.7 for example, that's got to be zero, because this box is not accelerating off the ramp in the y direction. It's not breaking through the ramp in the negative y direction, so there can't be any acceleration in the y direction. Therefore, you can set a sub y equal to zero. Putting in those two changes, equations 3.6 and 3.7 become 3.9 and 3.10. 3.9 says a sub x is just mg sine theta over m, which is g sine theta. And equation 3.10 says ay must equal zero. We're going to use that in a minute to figure out what the normal force is. So at this point, I think it's a good idea to step back and look at these answers and see if they're reasonable. We assume the box is staying on the ramp, so ay should be zero. But look at a sub x. There's some interesting things there. For one thing, the mass doesn't enter into it. The x acceleration is simply g sine theta. Well, you may remember that for a falling object, the mass doesn't enter into it. As long as we ignore things like air resistance, you simply have the acceleration of gravity g, and in the case of the ramp, sine theta. That also seems to make some sense in that if theta equals zero, now remind yourself what theta is. It's the angle between the horizontal and the ramp surface. So if theta equals zero, the ramp is horizontal. The box wouldn't slide at all, and sure enough, sine of zero is zero, so there is no x acceleration. 
Likewise, if sine theta is 90, then the ramp is vertical, sine of 90 is 1, so the acceleration is g. The object simply free falls next to the vertical ramp. And there's a little discussion on the top of page 68 that says that since sine theta can never be bigger than 1, you know that the acceleration of the box on the ramp can never be greater than the acceleration of gravity. Okay, back to the y equation. We said that a sub y must equal 0, so what does that tell us about the normal force? Well, look in the middle of page 68, and there you'll see the equation set equal to 0, and we just move one of the terms to the other side, and it says the magnitude of the normal force is mg cosine theta. I've noticed that it's a common mistake for students to assume that the normal force is always mass times gravity. That's true if the object is sitting on a horizontal surface. But if the object is sitting on a tilted surface, such as this ramp, the normal force is not mg. In this case, it's the component of the gravitational force in the direction perpendicular to the ramp, which is mg cosine theta. So two things that you want to be really careful of whenever you're dealing with the normal force is, first of all, it's a surface that produces a normal force. And secondly, that normal force may be mg, but it also may be different from mg depending on your situation, which you can understand by simply setting theta equal to zero. Cosine of zero is one. Therefore, the normal force is mg on a horizontal surface. And if theta is 90 degrees, cosine of 90 is zero. Therefore, there is no normal force because now gravity is not pulling the box into the ramp at all. If theta is 90 degrees, the ramp is vertical and there is no normal force. If we've already solved for a sub x, why are we fiddling at all with f sub n here? Well, we don't need it for this simplified version of the problem, but later on we're going to deal with friction, and in that case, it is really handy to know the normal force. So if you know a sub x, how do you find the velocity at the bottom of the ramp, which is, after all, what we said we were interested in? And you can read about that on page 69. You probably remember some kinematic equations which relate velocity and acceleration. The first one that usually comes to mind is equation 312 on page 69, which gives you the final velocity in terms of the initial velocity and the acceleration. Specifically, in this case, I've written v sub x final equals v sub x initial plus a sub x times t, the time. Sometimes in physics problems you do know the time, other times you don't. This is a case we don't yet know the time to get down the ramp, so this kinematic equation is not the most straightforward one for us to use. But there is another one that involves the distance, and that's equation 313. What this one says is that v sub x final squared is v sub x initial squared plus 2a sub x times d, the distance over which the acceleration has been happening. Well, in this case, we're going to assume that when the delivery woman slips off the ramp, the box has zero initial velocity, so we set vx initial equal to zero, and we just get vx final squared is equal to axd, which is 2 times g sine theta d. Take the square root of both sides, and you get vx final is the square root of 2 g sine theta times d. Then I put in some numbers just to give you an idea of the kind of acceleration we're talking about here. If it's a 2-meter ramp and the angle is 30 degrees, and using the gravitational acceleration here on the Earth, you'll find that at the bottom of the 2-meter ramp, the box is traveling about 4.5 meters per second. That's shown in equation 315. That's after it's traveled 2 meters under the acceleration we solve for in this section. Once you know that final velocity, you can actually go back and plug that in to equation 312 if you do want to determine the time, which works out to be something just under a second in this case. 
I think you can learn a lot of physics by making a problem like this very simple, doing away with friction, for example, but it's also instructive to include friction, and that's what's done next. On page 70, there's a little discussion of static versus kinetic friction. This is not a complete discussion of this subject. Almost any introductory physics book will give you a lot more on this, but I just wanted to remind you that there's static friction, which applies when an object is not moving, and there's kinetic friction, which applies for a moving object. In the case of static friction, the frictional force is only as strong as it needs to be to counteract any force that's trying to get the box to move. So if I push harder on the box and it still doesn't move, if it's not accelerating, the total force on it must be zero, and therefore the frictional force must be exactly what's needed to balance my push. And the harder I push until the box breaks loose, the stronger the force of static friction is going to be. So static frictional forces depend on other forces which are acting on the object. On the other hand, once the box is moving, kinetic friction depends on only two things, the normal force and the coefficient of kinetic friction between the bottom surface of the box and the top surface of the ramp. So we're, in this case, going to deal with kinetic friction. In order to include that in our equations, now there's another force we need to include in our equations. And which way does this force act? Well, if the box is sliding down the ramp, the frictional force always opposes the motion. Therefore, the frictional force must be acting up the ramp, that is, in a negative x direction as we've drawn our axes. So we simply include that. I'm just going to call it F sub F for now. And you see in equation 316 on page 70, now the sum of the x forces is not just the magnitude of Fg sine theta, the component of gravity acting down the ramp, it's also got minus the magnitude of F sub F. The minus sign, once again, is there because the frictional force is acting up the ramp, which is in the negative X direction. So we include that when we calculate the acceleration in equation 317, and now we say A sub X is equal to Fg sine theta minus the force of friction divided by M. So if we want to understand more about this, we need an expression for F sub F, the force of friction. But I said a minute ago that the force of friction in the kinetic case depends only on the normal force and the coefficient of kinetic friction. That's shown on the top of page 71 in equation 318. It says the magnitude of F sub F is mu sub K. That's the Greek letter mu with a little subscript K, meaning the coefficient of kinetic friction times the magnitude of the normal force. But that work we did a little earlier where we did figure out the normal force from the Y equation, we can now use that because we know from equation 311 that F sub n, the magnitude of the normal force, is mg cosine theta. So we simply plug that in for F sub n in equation 318 and plug that in to our expression for A sub x, and now we get the quantity mg sine theta minus mu k times mg cosine theta, that entire quantity, divided by m. When we do that, we get equation 319. That is, the acceleration in the x direction, when friction is present, is g sine theta minus mu k g cosine theta. There are some reassuring things about that. For example, if mu k is zero, if there is no friction between the ramp and the box, then that second term goes away, and we just get g sine theta, which is what we got when we assumed no friction. Notice also that the frictional term is subtracted from the first term, which means we're going to get a smaller answer, which is what you'd expect if friction is acting to oppose the motion. It's slowing down the box, and therefore the acceleration is less. 
With that new expression for a sub x, we can now go back to our example of the 2-meter ramp at 30 degrees to the horizontal, and I've assumed a coefficient of kinetic friction of 0.4 and determined the speed of the box. You can see that in equation 3.20, and it works out to be about 2.5 meters per second, reassuringly less than the 4.5 meters per second or so that we got when no friction was present. Now, if you look at equation 319 and you're worried that the x acceleration could be negative if mu k were a pretty big number, and depending on the angle, because after all, cosine can be bigger than sine under some circumstances, how could we get negative a sub x? That would mean the box is accelerating up the ramp. So imagine the delivery woman slips off the side and friction somehow carries the box accelerating up the ramp. Not going to happen. So there's a discussion of that on the bottom of page 71 about the fact that it's not physical. So did we do something wrong? Not exactly wrong. We just have to remember what our assumptions were when we wrote our equations. In this case, we assumed the box was traveling down the ramp. So when we wrote our frictional force, we wrote it in the negative x direction because it was opposing the downward motion of the box. So our equation 319 is not incorrect. It just has application when the box is moving down the ramp. If adding friction wasn't enough of a complication for you, there are in the chapter end problems at the end of this chapter, specifically problems 3.1 through 3.3, some additional complications that you can put into this kind of problem, and you can see how those work. Remember, the full solutions are available to you on the website. The next section of this chapter, section 3.2, also deals with an aspect of mechanics, but in this case, it's curvilinear motion. And this section begins on page 72. It starts off with a little review of some of the terminology that's important to understand when you try to analyze curvilinear motion. And perhaps the most important word is acceleration. As is often the case, when you use a word like acceleration in physics, it has a very precise meaning as compared to the perhaps more general, or in this case more limited meaning, in everyday use. Most people tend to think of acceleration as speeding up, that is, increase in velocity. But of course, in physics, we consider acceleration to be any change in velocity, and velocity being a vector means that the velocity vector may get longer, or it may get shorter, or it may change direction. That's why it says in the first paragraph of this section that every automobile has three accelerators, the gas pedal causing the car to increase its velocity, the brake causing it to decrease its velocity, and the steering wheel causing it to change the direction of its velocity. As you'll see at the end of this first paragraph, acceleration that is parallel or anti-parallel to the velocity is called tangential acceleration, and acceleration that is perpendicular is called radial or centripetal acceleration. You can see an example of both types of acceleration if you look at figure 3.7 on page 73. There you see a race car going around a curve, and I've marked three positions, A, B, and C, and I've shown the velocity vector at each position, which is tangent to the path that the car is following. What I have in mind here is that the car is slowing down as it enters the curve around position A. It's maintaining constant speed, but changing direction as it goes around the curve near position B, and then it straightens out its path and speeds up as it comes out of the curve near position C. You can see that by looking at figure 3.8 on the top of page 74, whereas approaching position A, the arrow representing the velocity vector is longer than just past A, 
whereas the two arrows around position B are the same length but pointed in slightly different directions, and approaching position C, the velocity vector is shorter than the velocity vector after passing through position C. Now, since acceleration is the change in velocity divided by the amount of time it takes for that change to occur, it's really helpful to know delta V, the change in the velocity vector. After all, if the vector A equals the vector delta V over the scalar delta T, you know that the acceleration vector A and the change in velocity vector delta V must be in the same direction, because dividing by a scalar delta T can change the magnitude, but not the direction. So the acceleration must be in the same direction as the change in velocity. And what is delta V? Delta V is V final minus V initial. So in order to make this a little easier to analyze, I've drawn V final and V initial in figure 3.9 right below figure 3.8. There you see V initial and on top of it V final a little shorter because the car is slowing down. I've also drawn a minus V initial. We'll get to that in a minute. Now look at position B. There's V initial and V final supposed to be the same length, but V final pointing in a slightly different direction. And finally, near position C, V initial is shorter than V final. Now, since we're looking for delta V, the change in velocity, which you know is V final minus V initial, you can think of that as being V final plus minus V initial. Because remember, minus a vector is just the same vector in the opposite direction. So what I've drawn in each of these three parts of figure 3.9, in addition to V initial, there's minus V initial. So you can easily imagine taking V final plus minus V initial in order to get the change in velocity. And I've done that for each of the three positions, A, B, and C. If you want to see how that looks, you can look at figure 3.10 on the top of page 75. There, if you look at the position A vectors, you'll see V final pointing up the page, minus V initial pointing down. Now, I've positioned these near each other because, remember, the way to add vectors graphically is to take the tail of one and put it at the head of the other. So V final minus V initial gives you that delta V vector that is called out in the figure. Likewise, if you look in the B part of the figure, there's V final, there's minus V initial, and if you go from the beginning of the first one to the end of the second one, you get the sum of those two vectors, which is delta V as shown on the figure. And for position C, there's V final a little longer than minus V initial, and when you add V final to minus V initial, you get delta V pointing in the same direction as V final. So this is exactly what you might expect. Going into position A, as we said, the car is slowing down, so the vector acceleration is in the opposite direction of the velocity vector. That's how tangential acceleration and velocity work. If the acceleration is in the same direction as the velocity, the object is speeding up. But if the acceleration is in the opposite direction from the velocity, the object is slowing down. And that's the case in position A. When you look at position B, V final and minus V initial have the same length, and look at where delta V is. It's neither parallel nor anti-parallel to V final, it is perpendicular to V final. Now you might look at that and say, wait, it's not exactly perpendicular, is it? We'll deal with that when we make this the instantaneous change in velocity in just a minute. And then finally in position C, as you can see, the delta V, which is in the direction of the acceleration, is in the same direction as V final because now the car is speeding up. 
You can read the discussion about this on page 75. And on the top of page 76, figure 311, I've actually drawn all those vectors onto the position of the car going around the track so you can see exactly where the delta V, which is, after all, in the same direction as the acceleration, where it points in each case. Notice also that at the bottom of page 75 and the top of 76, the word centripetal is described, which is actually a word that means center-seeking, because the centripetal acceleration is pointing neither along the velocity nor anti-parallel to the velocity, but perpendicular to it, that is, toward the center of curvature of the path that the car is following. So near position A, we have negative tangential acceleration. At position B, we have centripetal acceleration toward the center of curvature. And at position C, we have positive tangential acceleration. Where I'm using positive to mean in the same direction as the velocity and negative to mean in the opposite direction from velocity. Now, you may have seen an equation such as that shown in the middle of page 76, which says the vector a sub r is equal to minus the vector a sub c. The reason you'll find that in some physics and engineering texts is because radial acceleration is normally defined as radially outward from the center of curvature. Whereas we just said centripetal acceleration is center-seeking, so it's drawn radially inward toward the center of curvature. So the reason you see a sub r is minus a sub c in some texts is because they want to make sure you understand centripetal acceleration is one direction, and the normal definition of radial acceleration is in the opposite direction. In the analysis that's coming, you can use centripetal or you can use radial as long as you remember the direction for each of those accelerations. Notice what we haven't talked about is the often used centrifugal, not centripetal, centrifugal acceleration or centrifugal force that you often hear discussed. This is described at the bottom of page 76 and on page 77, and what you'll see there is that centrifugal acceleration is outward in the opposite direction from centripetal, and centrifugal force is an apparent force experienced by observers who are in a reference frame that is rotating. So there are two examples used here. In one, a car is going around a turn to the right, as the car is in the previous figures. If you're sitting in the car, you feel yourself pressing up against the left side of the car. It's as though there's an outward force acting upon you. Now, those of us who are not riding along with you know exactly what this force is. It's really an inward force. It's the side of the car pushing on you toward the right as you go around the right-hand turn because your tendency, according to Newton's second law, is to continue going in a straight line. So the left side of the car has to push on you inward toward the center of curvature to make you follow a curved path. But if you're riding in a car, all you feel is yourself being pushed against the left side. So you say, there must be a force in that direction. That's because you're in an accelerating, that is, rotating, reference frame. And physicists call such reference frames non-inertial. Another example of this is the hammer thrower, shown in figure 312, spinning a mass on the end of a cable. There you see the mass is going around counterclockwise, as is the thrower. And for the thrower, it feels like the object is pulling directly away from her. She would say there's an outward force on this object because she knows she has to pull inward very strongly to keep the mass at the same distance from her. So in her rotating, non-inertial reference frame, she experiences a force that's directly outward from her. But once again, 
Those of us who are looking down on her from our stationary seats in the stadium don't reach that conclusion at all. We simply say that mass is trying to go in a straight line. She needs to pull on the cable in order to put a centripetal force on the mass to make it curve and follow the curved path. So for those of us in the inertial, non-rotating reference frame, we see the mass undergoing centripetal acceleration provided by the thrower and the cable, and therefore it follows a curved path. So the bottom line is that centrifugal force is an apparent force experienced by an observer in a rotating or non-inertial reference frame. Can we use the concepts of centripetal acceleration and force and figure out just how much force is needed to make something follow a curved path? Turns out that that analysis is rather straightforward if you make yourself a figure such as figure 313 on page 78. There you see an object at some distance r it's moving in uniform circular motion. That means it is following the arc of a circle and it is neither speeding up nor slowing down. It maintains its distance r from the center of rotation. There I've drawn a v initial pointing up and to the right and a v final, which I tried to make the exact same length, pointing down and to the right. Notice I've looked at an angle delta theta and that arc distance, since both sides of this triangle are r, that arc distance between the starting point and v initial and v final is r delta theta. That's the arc length. You got to remember to express delta theta in radians if you're going to do this. Since we said this object is in uniform circular motion, we know that the magnitude of v final is equal to the magnitude of v initial. And therefore, we can just call the magnitude of that velocity v. The velocity's direction is changing, but not its magnitude. So written on the top of page 79, you'll see the magnitude of v initial is the magnitude of v final is the magnitude of v. We know what average speed is. Average speed is defined as the distance covered by an object divided by the time it takes to cover that distance. So in this case, we know the distance, we found that in figure 313, to be r delta theta. So we're going to write our average velocity is r delta theta divided by delta t, the amount of time it took to cover that. That's equation 321 on the top of page 79. Solving that for delta theta, you see 322. The delta theta is the magnitude of v times delta t divided by r, the radius of curvature. Why is this helpful? Well, it turns out that the angle change delta theta is directly related to the magnitude of the vector change in velocity, which is going to help us determine the acceleration. In order to find that, we need to do our usual delta v, that is take v final minus v initial, or as we've been doing, v final plus minus v initial. That's shown in figure 314 on the bottom of page 78. I've moved the vectors to make it convenient to add them. There you see v final. v initial I've now written as minus v initial because we're about to subtract or add the negative of it. And the vector on the left side of this triangle is the difference between them. That is the sum of v final plus minus v initial. Notice that the length of that vector is just magnitude of v delta theta. Why is that? Well, each of those sides has length magnitude of v, and delta theta is the angle between them. Therefore, the arc length in figure 314 is magnitude of v delta theta. But now consider what happens if we let delta theta be very small. That is, if we're looking for the instantaneous change in the velocity, which will, of course, give us the instantaneous acceleration. As delta theta gets smaller and smaller, 
that curving arc length shown on the left of figure 314 becomes indistinguishable in length from the length of the side of that triangle, which we said was V final minus V initial. That means we can set delta V approximately equal to the magnitude of V times delta theta. But we know what delta theta is from equation 322. So now, in equation 323, on bottom of page 79, you'll see the magnitude of delta V is approximately equal to the magnitude of V delta theta, that's from figure 314, and then we simply substitute in from 322, delta theta is the magnitude of V times delta T over R. When you mush that together, you get delta V, the magnitude of the change in velocity, is the magnitude of V squared times delta T over R. But now we've got the centripetal acceleration. Why? Because the centripetal acceleration A sub C is just delta V divided by delta T. So therefore, equation 324 shows you the magnitude of A sub C, the centripetal acceleration, is the magnitude of the change in velocity delta V divided by delta T. But we have the magnitude of delta V from equation 323. We plug that in, the delta T's cancel, and at last we have the centripetal acceleration magnitude is simply the magnitude of the velocity squared over R. So what determines the centripetal acceleration of an object following a curved path is its speed, actually the square of its speed, and R, the radius of curvature of the path it's following. Now you may say, well this is all well and good if you're doing uniform circular motion, but what if I'm following a rather more jagged path, or if I'm not keeping my speed the same? But that's the beauty of making delta theta very small. If we allow delta theta to become infinitesimally tiny, then the speed doesn't have a chance to change over that angle delta theta, and the approximation we made becomes very accurate. Furthermore, the exact shape of the path doesn't matter at all, because over this tiny little angle, that segment looks like a straight line. So if you want to get some idea of how much acceleration we're talking about, there's an example on page 80 in which a hammer thrower has a 4 kilogram mass and a 1.2 meter cable traveling at a speed of 20 meters per second. There you see the centripetal acceleration is calculated as 333.3 meters per second squared. If you want to turn that into a force, that's easy enough because we know the mass, and that turns out to be something over 1,300 newtons, or almost 300 pounds of force. You may be wondering if it's possible to have both centripetal and tangential acceleration at the same time, and the answer is it is certainly possible. You may be speeding up or slowing down as you're going around a curve. Such a situation is shown in figure 315 on the bottom of page 80, and if you want to know the total acceleration, since tangential is always tangent to the path and centripetal is always perpendicular to that, you can use the Pythagorean theorem, and your total acceleration is simply given by the square root of a tangential squared plus a centripetal squared, as shown on the top of page 81. You know that the centripetal acceleration is v squared over r. The tangential acceleration is just how much your speed changes with time, the magnitude of delta V over delta T, and that's shown in equation 325. There are some problems involving centripetal and tangential acceleration at the end of this chapter, and I recommend that you take a look at those. The next podcast will deal with the third and fourth sections of this chapter, that is section 3.3 on the electric field and section 3.4 on the magnetic field.